Wow, I haven't spoken before a dinner crowd in years. I feel like a lounge lizard in Vegas. Ding, cling, 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 cling. Good, everybody's through eating. Put that glass down. Um, let me ask you a few questions. What do the four following four people have in common? You take your automobile into a repair shop, and the engine's running, and before you say a word, the mechanic can tell you exactly what's wrong with your car. He's not even opened the hood yet. Second person, single mom, divorcee, three children. She works 45 hours a week. She's going to school two nights a week to learn new computer skills. On Saturday mornings, she works at a soup kitchen to help the homeless. Her children are read to every night. And on Sunday, she's in church and she teaches Sunday school. High school young lady. There's something about her that everybody loves to be around her. Everybody. They get around her, they just feel better. And just with simple but profound things, she says, changes their lives. But even without saying anything, everybody in the school just loves to be around this specific young lady. One other person. There's a guy in your office. He has no title. He has no office, official office. But no one does anything in the business without talking to him first. He just has this uncanny sense of knowing who belongs where, what should go first, how the networks are working, what won't work at this time of the season. But again, he has no title. He doesn't sit on any board. Uh, he doesn't manage any uh, division within the company. But everybody knows this is the guy to talk to. Now, what do they all have in common? Every one of them is a genius. And the other thing they have in common is not one of them know it. We've been brought up here in the United States and in Western culture specifically to believe that a genius has to have a stratospheric IQ. That a genius is Stephen Hawking, uh, maybe uh, Bill Gates, uh, Steve Forbes, uh, Mozart certainly, or a Bach or an Einstein. These are geniuses. But I want to suggest, or if not outright assert, that with that definition you ignore the genius that's within the vast majority of humans all around you, all around the world. That everybody has a specific genius about them. Now, they don't see it typically. They see it as something in common that they have. It's just, oh, this, it's nothing. Everybody can do this. Now, no one else can do it. But they don't get that. They don't see who they are. They don't see what they have, typically. But it is a genius. Think about this. Especially anyone out there who doesn't think of yourself as a genius. What is probably the single most difficult thing a human will ever do in the sphere of education or learning? It's learning their language. Learning a language is probably the single most difficult thing that a human does. And yet every one of you was fluent by the time you were four or five years old. You learned words, you strung words together into sentences, you put sentences into paragraphs. In a matter of months, if not years, you were talking to people ten times your age, carrying on perfectly uh, fluid, dynamic conversations. 
When you got into the first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, you were putting those words together and reading books. That is an incredible feat for us to have accomplished. Anything else you learn after that is actually easier. Tying a shoe, learning to coordinate, find coordinating skills, learning to ride a bicycle. These things, we look back on, eh, anybody, I'm, I have offices in Bonn, Germany, and uh, I've, I can get around a taxi in a restaurant, and that's about it if I have to speak German. And my staff are always teasing me. They said, but Monty, German's so easy. We were all speaking it by the time we were three. Certainly, you, there is a certain logic and truth about that, isn't there? We create difficulties in our mind. When I was getting my master's in education, I ran across this study. And that's a very famous study now. On one hand, it always bothers me because I hate seeing children used as guinea pigs. But it is a very interesting and telling study. They took these 40 children, split them up into two groups of how many government school people? Two groups of 20. All right, so they split them up into two groups of people, give them teach class A, class B. All right, class A, the teacher was told these are average students. Now, the fact was they were all C students. But this teacher was told these people are just, they're average. But teacher B was told her 20 were absolute genius. She probably couldn't keep up with them, but do your best. The end of the semester, C's, D's, F's, all A's. It was the perception of the teacher that the students lived up to. It's the perception not only that we have of ourselves, but of other people. If I expect my children to be dolts and idiots and treat them that way, they, in fact, will live down to my expectation and my standards. But that's not just in home life. It's in business as well. It's in any kind of relationships. People have a tendency to live up to our expectations. So if we think only a special few people have a genius, then only a special... Let me tell you something. You take a, an Anthony Hopkins or a Stephen Hawking or... Uh, 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 well, Bernstein's not alive. You take whoever you might consider a genius and you have them trade places with that single mom with three little rugrats and you find out what kind of genius they have. You have them work on your car and find out what, how their genius operates. Now, I do believe that because they do have a specific genius, there's far more that they could do and learn that they've not applied their genius to. In other words, I don't think you're restricted. What I want to say today is that because you have that, there is so much more that you could do with your life, especially considering the fact that you're not just human, so to speak, but you're a spirit-filled human. You're a God-indwelled human. So you take all these human potentials and capabilities and gifting and talent and you add into that mix the infinite power and wisdom and glory of God. It is amazing what should be able to be accomplished in our lives, but in fact what is rarely accomplished. And I think much of it goes back to how we perceive ourselves. We don't perceive ourselves as being a genius we don't perceive ourselves as being it my, my parents told me from early on i was a genius and i could do anything now i have no idea if they knew what my iq was i i never knew what it was until i was in the university system All right but my parents told me that i was a genius i could learn anything i wanted to and i could be anything i wanted to be when i grew up now i believe them i mean why would my parents lie to me and so i believe so in the sixth grade i decided i want to learn to play piano so I watched, uh, who was it on TV, uh, Van Cliburn back then. He was playing Rachmaninoff, and I looked at him, and I said, he could do that, I could do that. 
All right, and he had just won like the most prestigious some award from Poland, and and so I told my parents, hey, I want to learn uh, to play the piano. My dad was a little worried. My dad was really into science and math and facts, and musical and art kind of made him worry. He was, let me put it this way, he was thrilled when I started dating girls. But dad was, he was real concerned about this love for art and music and, you know, and, uh, but to his credit, he supported me in that. So, sir, you can do this, you can learn it. At the end of a year, I'd already gone through three years worth of books. Now, is that because I was a genius? Is that because I had a talent for music? Or was it because of my parents' belief in me? Now, maybe it's a mixture of both, but I'll tell you this, if my parents didn't believe in me, if my parents told me that learning was going to be difficult, or if they held that image of me within them, it would, in fact, have been that way for me. Nine times out of ten, anyway. Now, our perceptions of ourselves as Christians, what is that? Blase Pascal said, the man is both the glory and the rubbish of the universe. He's both. Now, how many serious Christians, though, never think of themselves as the glory of the universe? Serious Christians, they see the rubbish, the garbage. And so that's how they define themselves. They don't define themselves in terms of their calling, in terms of who their king is. They don't define themselves in terms of their potential. They define themselves solely in terms of their weakness, their frailties, their problems, their sins, their tragedies, their past, whatever. And then we can't figure out why they never accomplish anything, why they never attempt anything. Now, let me be careful. Certainly there are some people out there that could stand to be shown their clay feet. You know, everybody's clay smells but theirs. Uh, they, they have no sin. They're important. They're king of their own universe. And they've never done anything wrong, had any problems. Certainly those people could use the other side of uh, Pascal's saying. But my experience is, I, and I travel and speak to thousands of people every year, my experience is most people really don't like themselves. Most people, and I'm talking about Christians, most people look at themselves and they consider themselves an idiot, if not at least just stupid and ignorant. How do you teach people like that? You first have to change the perceptions of themselves, which I, I, I believe actually uh, is why we should emphasize the home in, 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 in how we treat our children and how we rear our children and grandchildren today. It's how we perceive them. They, they will live up to that. But so often in, in my world, uh, you know, my age, you know, most of the time your parents were, you know, saying things like, you idiot, you imbecile, you know, oh, you're never going to amount to anything. Say that again, I'll flush you down the toilet. Well, you know, you kind of get raised with stuff like that. You, 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 what do you expect? But here you are on this quest to be all uh, that God has called you to be. Here you are, you've entered into this, as the metaphors I've been using, you've entered into the enchanted forest you, on this quest to find the Holy Grail, to become more self-aware, to become more aware of who God is in your life and what you can do. Uh, but it's like, well, this is not for me. I'll carry the water for somebody else. Well, certainly we all do that off and on in our lives, but if God has more for you. You've got to be open and available to that. All right, you have to be, you have to be able to say, if that's, hey, right now, if that's what God wants me to do, but I'm just as willing to be a CEO or a physician. I'm just as willing to learn to play piano at 55 years old. I have such, I was at a graduation a while back at a college graduation, and they've got this 80-year-old guy walking by. I got his bachelor's. I cried. I don't even know who the guy is, and I cried. I want to applaud, give him an award, give him $10,000, give him his money back. This is fantastic. You know, because how many of us, we leave college, we never learn anything new again. Now, here we are saying we're children of the king, we're Christians, you know, and God's given us all these abilities, all these talents, all these capacities, and yet we don't do anything with them. 
God gives us a capacity to hear. Uh, it's just, it's in, it, it just incredible, the sounds that are just in creation, much less the sounds of babies laughing or the sounds of a symphony or Eric Clapton or whatever you enjoy, the sounds that... And, and we're totally, especially in this culture, uh, one of the senses that's probably the least used is auditory. For example, if you think that most people are listening to what you're saying or what I'm saying, you're greatly deceived. People really don't listen today. You know, I mean, that's a shock for young people to get that no one really heard a word they said. But after about, you know, 30 years of life, you understand that people really aren't listening. You've got to get their attention. You've got to say it 10 different ways. You've got to paint pictures because the ears just aren't used. I'm not being facetious whatsoever here. The eyes, we've got eyes so we know how to see. No, we don't. Be trained how to see. Now, do we think of that as part of the Christian experience? Do we think of that as part of increasing in our abilities to glorify God? No. Is it? Yes. Are we wrong? Yeah. Yeah, it's just the, the, the ability of a human to experience life and help others experience life more fully is... It's incredible. There are no words to describe, and yet we sit around. It's like that guy I, I was telling you about uh, uh, this morning. You know, he gets on the plane, and he looks at me, and uh, he says, Hi there, have you been washed in the blood? You know, and I asked him, has this worked for you in the past? And it hasn't, of course, because it, it, it grossed everybody out. They didn't understand a word he was saying. Now, the question in that same realm about us is, what about us is attractive? As humans, what about us is attractive? Now, I was talking to someone earlier this morning. We also think that the only thing that's attractive would be perfection. I mean, if people found out that I'm having trouble with one of my children, or I just got laid off, or, you know, I would like to spend a month in a hospital right now, or, uh, you know, I'm having struggle with my bills, or if they heard my wife and I having a very heated exchange, there goes the testimony, just the opposite. It's how we handle those situations that is attractive or not. Life happens. We're humans. Kids get sick. Marriages fail. Businesses go bankrupt. That happens to all of us. We don't have some kind of King's X on our life that keeps us from no chocolate mess. It's how we handle those situations that becomes attractive or unattractive to the world around us. You ask, I, go, I do this a lot in some of the workshops I do in churches, I'll open up with, okay, there's a lady named Rowling. What is she famous for? Out of a thousand people, maybe five could raise their hand. What was Madonna's last album? Maybe two could raise their hand. When's the last time you've been to a symphony? Nobody raises their hand. How many in here have a serious hobby? hundred people out of a thousand. How many of you have taken a vacation and walked through an art museum or, or uh, walked through a beautiful park or gone to a, a history museum to, to learn something dif different? Nobody. How many, is it the last time you took your children out to a park or to a museum? Nobody. How many of you all know who Deepak Chopra is and what he's famous for and what his books are? And why he's so influential in our culture today? Minus nobody. Now here we are, Christians, supposed to be engaged in our culture and making a difference for goodness, for truth, for beauty, and we don't even know who the players are. We don't even know who the movers and shakers and what they're moving and what they're shaking. And yet we're going to make a difference. It's like the serious Christian community has turned into some kind of neo-Amish cult. We're afraid of the world. Oh no, king's leper, leper, run. That's a lost person. You know, in the Old Testament, 
Of course, you remember the laws were that you couldn't, uh, uh, in the Old Testament Israel, if you touched a leper, you had to go outside the camp for so long, and uh, etc. But what happened when Jesus came? Totally different. They touched him, they got healed. That is the model for us, whereas so many Christians use an Old Testament model to be separate from the world they're called to influence. How do we influence if we're not engaged? How do we influence if we're not apart? How do we influence if we're not out there, you know, becoming more and more the person we're called to be within the culture we're called to be it? I don't see how we do it. Now, in this quest to become all that God's called us to be, the, the language of John uh, that I used this morning, that uh, there's the promise of being given this name on a white stone when you go to heaven, and it's a name that will describe you fully and comprehensively. And that's somewhat our journey, is becoming that name, all right? In that quest, it's all individual, all right? It, it, it's your name is different from anybody else's name. You can learn from other people, but you can't or shouldn't become other people. It's not like, oh, I see Robert Redford on TV. I think I'll try him on. Well, no, there's only one him. In my own opinion, thank God there's only one him. And I'm sure everybody says that about me, too. All right, there's only one. Okay, oh, I like her. Oh, she's famous. I think I'll try her on and act like her and dress like her. No, you're trying to become somebody else. You know, you can learn. You can be provoked. You, you can be stimulated. You can be instructed, but you don't take somebody else's path. Now, in saying all that, there are some things that are common to all of us. And no matter who you are, where you are in your journey, there are some things that all of us have to learn, that all of us have to do. That's it's just absolute. Remember the, the first message I gave, I talked about how we were created with certain abilities, with certain callings, and then the fall happened, then sin enters. Well, those callings, those ultimate intentions of God for humanity still are there. And when you become a Christian, when you're converted or born again or know God or whatever analogy you want to use, when you are restored in your relationship to your Creator, those ultimate intentions become yours again. All right, uh, just a, a handful of them real quickly. Uh, the, w the first chapter, first verse of the Bible is what? In the beginning, God created. Now, we're supposed to reflect the nature of God in our lives. I believe that every one of us is called on to have an incredibly creative life. I don't mean that means that you should be a painter. I, I don't necessarily mean that you should be an artist. But there, there's something about godly people, the way they see life, the way they make juxtapositions of things that, how did you put those things together? I never would have seen that. There's something about a Christian that, that, that should be so creative in how they approach life, how they manage their lives, how they uh, express their lives. As we'll see in a minute, God's called on us to manage creation. All right, there's a, a certain degree of creativity that is involved there in mixing together financial concerns and uh, uh, ecological concerns. There's, there, 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 there has to be a godly creativity in how to put those things together and preserve both a free market, a capitalistic society, and conserve nature so that our children have, oh, that's a tree. Okay? Um, but here we are. We're called on to be creative. The first thing, I wanted to be creative the first time I sat down to a piano. I want to write music. Teacher said, shut up. You know, it's going to take you a while to learn the fundamentals. You've got to learn the fundamentals before you can be creative. You've got to learn the fundamentals of your craft, of your discipline, of life, before you can start being creative. But creative we are called to be. Now, that's not, 
You know what fascinates me, in my world anyway, and, and it's, it's a rather broad world, but obviously it doesn't include all Christians across the country, but I speak in pretty much, you name it, I've spoken in those denominations and mainly in fundraising events for Sudan and uh, Nicaragua or whatever. And um, one of the things I've noticed is that, that some churches really emphasize truth. I mean, they are really big on truth. Truth, 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 truth. Capital T, truth. And instead of going to church, you felt like you were in a theological seminary. All right, and some churches, they emphasize um, uh, glorifying God uh, in worship and in holiness. And so it's a, a lot of standards and a lot of worship or whatever. You know what, though? It's, it, it occurred to me a while back, I can't remember ever being in a church that emphasized the beauty of God. There's nothing about the architecture. There's nothing about the lifestyle. There's, there's nothing about them that is beautiful. You walk into their homes, drab, dull, gray, black and white. The relationships are that way, the architecture is that way, how they've decorated the houses are that way, and it says everything about their lives. Does that reflect God? No. So when I say creative, I'm talking about just a whole way of approaching life and of reflecting who our Creator is. I mentioned a moment ago the, what we call the cultural mandate. That is on all of us. Genesis 1.27 says that we're to cultivate the earth, to make it more beautiful. Now, that's not just gardens, though I believe that's part of it. It's, it's wherever you put your hand. How can I cultivate this? Where do we get our word cultivate from? Culture. Where does the word culture come from? Class. Latin. Cultus. And what does that word mean? Anybody? Anyway. Bueller. Bueller. Is it? Worship. Worship. To cultivate the earth is to make it a place of worship, a place that glorifies God, a place that honors God, a place where God is seen in all of his truth and beauty. Can that happen in your office? Absolutely. Tomorrow, maybe not. But it can, at least by your reflection and how you live. All of us, whatever we're doing, that's part of our life. Whether it's music or medicine or raising our children, how we handle our property, it grieves me to no end to pull up to some Christian's yard and it looks like nobody's lived there in a year. I'm sorry, you may think that's small. I don't. I think it speaks volumes about their perceptions of their calling and their responsibility and the power or lack thereof of their testimony. Their cars, I can't stand. I was I, driving from Cleveland today, come through Toledo, and there's this like... 86 Buick that looked like it's about to fall off its wheels and I go buy it and there's a bumper sticker on the back God is my provider <laughs> man at least take the bumper sticker off you know sorry I think I'll try another God one of the ultimate intentions is to labor to work to cultivate means labor you go to the Ten Commandments we all remember the commandment to take a Sabbath right but what does it preface the commandment with? Before it says, keep the Sabbath, what does it say? Six days shall you labor. But on the seventh, six days shall you labor. Nothing about 40 hours. Where did that concept come from? I have no idea. Some union somewhere, probably. Let's just get it down. Make more money, work a few hours. It's Miller time. What's that? How come we don't, no wonder we're not producing anything. I, was, I saw a brief interview with Steven Spielberg the other day, and it was talking about how eyes open at 5 o'clock in the morning, he hauls from his kitchen 
every morning running, grabs a cup of coffee, cannot wait to get into his office because he's got 30 zillion new ideas for productions. Hates to sleep because he's just got so much he wants to accomplish. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that is the Christian mentality. I'm not saying that, that he's a Christian, all right, or that everything he does with that talent is good or whatever. My point is there's something about a Christian that, that should be like that. Right, I'm not saying that you should go volunteer to work 80 hours now at your job. I'm saying that there's so much more you can produce, but it means hard work. I see so many people sleeping their lives away. You know, I, I, what is that? And they take Saturday off, and they sit there, and they watch cartoons, they watch ESPN, they watch the football, they watch the news, they get a DVD, they watch, and they go to sleep. And it's like, I understand vegging out off and on. I understand the need for turning the engines off. But, but the Bible is clear. We're to be known. One of the greatest compliments, the church, uh, years ago I used to pastor, and I, if you've ever been in a pastor, you'll understand why this is such a, a, a deal to me is after a few years, all of a sudden we notice we're getting all these phone calls from grocery stores, uh, uh, True Value Hardware, from nurseries, from uh, uh, just all around the area where we were there in North Florida. And it was because our children had developed such a reputation for being the hardest, most honest workers that everybody started calling us. And I, I, to me, that was the most overwhelming compliment and what I believe is what the church should be famous for. I remember when I was a kid, I first got married, uh, we were looking at maybe building, well, not first. I was telling someone my first year, of, uh, second year of marriage, I made $4,000. Do that and have a baby. Talk about turning water into wine, man. Um, but, uh, uh, and then I sold it. But uh, uh, I remember telling my father when we were building our first house, he said, and my dad was a pastor, all right? He was a Christian minister. And he said, son, the last thing you want is a Christian builder. Find a Mormon. They're fantastic. Isn't that horrible? All right, I got in trouble, uh, uh, falsely accused while I was ministering. Some father who had been sexually abusing his daughter figured out that I knew it and was worried that I was going to expose him to the world. He exposed himself. He called the cops on me, and I had to go find a lawyer. My dad's out of town, and I call him. I said, well, there's a Christian lawyer around town. He says, my God, son, this is important. Call your grandfather, Mr. Bernstein in Miami Beach. He'll fly, uh, he'll fly your, your lawyer, the family lawyer up, and he'll take care of this. Now, at the time, oh, okay, you know, fine. But as I grew up, I realized that is not acceptable. We're Christians. People should go out of their way to find, the, oh, you want a Christian, man. These people are so awesome at what they produce. They're so, and they're so interesting to be around. When, when is it, now, sometimes, you know, I get, well, hey, Dr. Wilson, that was really interesting. Now, that's kind of a euphemism for it stunk. I didn't like it. I didn't like what you said. I'm angry. You know, so sometimes it's not a good thing to say. But when is the last time that people said about us, wow, are they interesting? Man, I mean, they, they, they just are so well-rounded and they're so human, but there's something else. There's a dynamic or a scent or a taste about their life that sets them apart. Is that, is that our testimony as an individual or as a church? I think it is more so now than it was when I was a young man. But I think we still have a long way to go i was thrilled i saw usa today uh i was in my room you know door and opened it up and who are the most credible trustworthy people i couldn't believe it the top two were nurses and clergy i thought now there's a plus i mean i remember 15 years ago where clergy would have been underneath insurance salesmen and mechanics and used car salesmen 
And now they were at the very top of the list with uh, nurses. It was doctors and pharmacists, etc., that were even under less credible than nurses and clergy. That's a plus, but still it was only 20% of the people thought they were credible. And I beat out a whole lot of other people, but still, we got a ways to go as a church. Do our communities look around and say, man, that's where we want to go to find people? Do colleges come to our schools and our kids and say, man, we want your kids as students? A little bit. You see that more and more. I talk to people at uh, Hillsdale College in South Michigan. One of my daughters graduated from there. They'll tell you, they go after homeschooled kids now. They love Christian homeschooled kids. And you hear that from more and more, not just like Grove City and some of the more Christian-style colleges, but even uh, so-called secular schools, because they've discovered something about the nature of this child that will make it a phenomenal student. I mean, that's the kind of testimony. But I want to be careful here. It's not, we don't do this just to get people to approve of us or like us or utilize our services. We do this because this is who we are. We do this because God's called us to utilize all of our talents, our capacities, our abilities for Him. We do it because we're obe- this is just what we're supposed to do. That you're blessed by that, great. But even if you're not, it's still what I'm called to do. What you're called to do. When it says, seek first the kingdom of God, what do you think it's about? Just prayer? Obviously, that's part of it. I was talking to some new Christian the other day, and he'd read, poor guy, he read some book about a guy that prayed 12 hours a day. And this guy works 15 hours a day, so I don't leave much time to sleep. If he prays 12 hours a day, I'm like, Lord, what am I going to do? And I said, well, I'm not going to criticize. Let's just say that's his calling, but that's not really what the whole Christian life is about. You know? and, 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 but a lot of Christians, that's it. You know? I have a job so I can support my religious habit. I have a job so that I can go home and pray and listen to spiritual tapes. Do you know it's just as much a glory to God and a service to God to go home and, and, and read a great book to your kids? Do you know it's just as much and maybe more so to go out and plant some rose gardens? Do you know it's just as spiritual if you're doing it to the glory of God and for experiencing more of God's great gift of life to go to a symphony? It is just amazing how we've restricted the things that will glorify God. Remember in the garden, there were no sacred profane dichotomies. It was all God's garden. Go all over the place and enjoy it and make it more beautiful. That is what we're about. That's... To to be able to sit around and hear other people talk about how they approach their disciplines, their skill, their talent, their careers, their callings, and to be stimulated by that makes us more fully human. My dad told me something once when I first started ministering. He said, listen, Monty, anything that adds to you as a man adds to you as a minister. I don't care what it is. You go out and you learn to do some kind of skill. You read a book on science or, or philosophy or whatever. Anything that adds to you makes you a better person, which will make you a better minister. But expose yourself to other thoughts, other theologies, other lifestyles. Be, be, be provoked. Be stretched. I was talking to a doctor in um, uh, Atlanta recently, a uh, uh, plastic surgeon, and two boys were out hunting during hunting season, and they shouldn't have been uh, alone. And they were young boys, and uh, they had not been taught safety. Uh, weapon safety, and uh, one boy had not safety to his uh, weapon, and also was not carrying it uh, down, but like this, and it goes off and shoots his buddy through here and blows out the jaw. So they get the boy to the hospital. Two teams of surgeons, and they're having a, an argument over the boy. One of them, of course, is realizing he's bleeding to death, and we've got to do something to sew him up and stop this. 
the plastic surgeons are, what do we do if we put in a metal plate? He's going to have to have surgery after surgery after surgery after surgery after surgery as he grows because he was only like nine or ten years old. So what do we do? So the cheap, the plastic surgeon, all of a sudden, brilliant. He says, okay, I can't think of what to do as a surgeon. What would I do if I was a carpenter? Because his hobby was he built furniture. And all of a sudden it hit him. Particle board, particle bone. I'll make particle bone. And he created right there some mesh, took some uh, chips, created this, all right, and it's growing with the boy as he grows up. It was amazing. Now, how did he do that? He stepped outside of his box, so to speak, and was stimulated by another box, all right, another approach. And that's what is, that's what is supposed to be happening here. There's so much about our life that we see as problems or difficulties, but it's because often that we've not been stimulated by how someone else approaches their work. We've not been stimulated by the thoughts and world models and, and relational models of other people. And all of a sudden we get with them and you go, ah, I know what to do about this marital conflict. I know what to do about this, this financial uh, opportunity. I know what to do with this child. Shoot him. No, I know what... <laughs> I know, you know, but that comes from the intermixing. And so often we get so caught up in our lives that we miss one of the most important of God's ultimate intentions. God looks at Adam and what did he say? It's not good for him to be alone. Relationships. Obviously in this context it was about a mate. But it's larger than that as you read the Bible. It wasn't just family. It was tribes and church and community. We have a God-given need for relationships. And you're not going to be a whole person unless you have authentic, healthy, ever-increasing relationships. New and old. I'll close with this analogy. Think of yourself as, as uh, if you tore up a piece of paper, you, the piece of paper would be one of your gifts. All right? But here's a fascinating thing I want you to see. On that gift, it didn't have your name. It had my name on it. You have something that belongs to me. You have something that I need. And you've got all these things with other people's names on them that aren't yours. They're gifts to be stewarded for the sake of other people. You have wisdom and talent and understanding. Even often your frustrations and failures are blessings and strength to other people, or can be. But we walk around with them either, either unaware of all this genius and all this ability, or we just don't put ourselves in a place to help others. Well, I don't have anything to offer. Believe me, you do too. Sometimes just your very presence is an offering, a strength. And you get out in this culture today, you understand what uh, writer provoke one another to love and good deeds. We need that kind of provocation. Use your gift in stimulating and serving one another. There is no holiness, if you will. Uh, like I said uh, yesterday, that's a freighted word that brings up all kinds of weird images, but there is no spiritual healthiness living by yourself. I'm sorry. That is not how God designed it. One of God's ultimate intentions is for us to be joined with other people to be provoked by other people, relationally, spiritually, intellectually, in every way. Those are God's ultimate intentions. That is part of what it is about to be part of the kingdom of God. Thank you.